to Say That, the podcast where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. And joining us here is Glenn Fitzgerald, the founder of Mission USA. Once again, I am under protest. That's fair enough. Also joined by other co-host, Jed Brewer. I mean, that's a good place to begin. What are we protesting? Well, I don't want to speak we aren't anymore. all here. That's that's true. We are without regular co-host when the pastor of Christ Community Church, Lee Younger, he is on special uh-huh. assignment, bringing the, the love and light of our Lord to a dark, backwards, and forgotten land. I have it written here called Alabama. That's... <laughs> It sounds perilous, and we wish Lee all the best. So we're we're here. We always pray for our missionaries are are uh, under a hedge of protection. There's no Absolutely. doubt about that. But we are here with you. We are ready to have a great show. We've got some wonderful questions that you folks have written in. But unfortunately, we must start with me declaring a cinematic emergency. Emergency. Now, this is a very specific type of cinematic emergency, as Long-time listeners of the show will know, I did not really grow up in the church, did not grow up with the Christian culture stuff, so I am even today finding things that were around when I was a young person uh, that I can't believe are real. (laughs) And we have one such of those things this week, because it was this week that I learned that there was a direct-to-video Christian superhero called Bible Man. Yeah. A series that ran from 1995 to 2010, releasing about 50 uh, adventures, such as it were. And I'm sure some of you knew about such a thing, some of you don't. So I'm actually going to pull the audio from the uh, the opening where you get Bible Man's (laughs) backstory. We're going to drop that in here. It's just as melodramatic as you'd hope. Miles Peterson. A man who had it all. Wealth, status, success. Still, something was lacking. Miserable, alone, his spirit beaten, Miles Peterson gave up. Then, in his darkest hour, the words of a single book began to change his life. And at last, Miles Peterson felt the burning desire to know God. Inspired by the Word of God and equipped with unyielding faith, Miles pledged to fight evil in the name of God as Bible Man. So, but in the spirit, so now that you've heard about the original mid-90s version of Bible Man, you may note from our friends in Hollywood, such as it is nowadays, uh, gritty reboots are all the rage. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, like Batman used to be fun, and now he's he's depressed and divorced, and Superman used to have colors, but now there's not any colors anymore, that kind of thing. So right. I wonder if we could pitch and put together the gritty Bible Man reboot. Oh, that's oh. good. That's very good. Kind of a, a Zack Snyder presents Bible Man. Yes, absolutely. Except not six hours long because yikes. <laughs> so there's obviously a number well, of places we could start. We could do backstory. We could do, I think villains would be very, a very good place to start. Like what would be the kind of dark Bible Man villains? Can I, can I just before we get into the villains, because there's a lot of rich territory with, with the, the villains that Bible Man would, would fight. would just like to say, like, 
just picture like what would be the nerdiest possible version of this. It's worse than that. Oh, it's yeah, it's rough. And the the thing I need to to share with you is like when when there's a Norse mythological figure and and Marvel gets a hold of it, it's the coolest, handsomest guy, and he's fighting giants and things, and it's but let Christians get a hold of something and say, okay, give me a superhero. It is the absolute saddest thing ever. Yeah. Well, to that point of the, and we don't want to cast aspersions because, you know, the mid nineties were a dark time for cinema, but I'm on the Wikipedia page under the reception subheading. And it was apparently discussed on a UK topical show at which uh, comedian David Mitchell said, the thing that struck me about it is how badly it was made to the extent that you'd think it was being made by anti-Christian people to make Christianity look as artless <laughs> as possible. Wow. Very, very rough. But to the, to the dark and gritty, because I know my co-hosts are uh, occasional partakers of both uh, movies with people, punching people, and movies that they realize they have to apologize for taking their wives to for how bleak and hopeless it was. <laughs> Do we have any pitches? Well, you know, just to set the mood, um, I, I, I've looked up quotes from Bible man. I have them in front of me and it, it feels like what we need to do just to start is to try running through just workshopping a few quotes in kind of the Christian Bale Batman voice and just see how that feels to us. Oh, that's good. Hmm. So I, I present, for example, pride and destruction go together like liver and onions or toenails and cheese, like Sonny and Cher or Donnie and Marie, like finding a Band-Aid in your salad or drinking goat's milk with a head cold. <laughs> I'm Bible Man. Boy, they, the writer's room didn't feel like need to cut any of those, huh? <laughs> what? Just go with the, the, the comedy rule of sevens. <laughs> also, I will point out the earliest this could have happened was 1995. Sonny and Cher, Donnie and Marie references. That's Christian. That's Christian culture right there. <laughs> What's wrong with Donnie and Marie? Just not a contemporary reference. I mean, also, for a largely evangelical audience, lots of things are wrong with Donnie and Marie. Uh, <laughs> given the Utahness of it all. I want to get back to the the villains part because I'm looking at the villains on the actual show. Yeah, yeah. Um, it it, it it's like uh, it's it's out there. So I'm looking at what's the one I was looking at here. Baron Ulysses Tantamount von Brackert. Yeah, okay. they really went for it with the names. He's he he's a pig villain with a golden head cap who lives in a castle, and he has an electric staff that he uses to battle Bible Man. <laughs> well, you've certainly got you know your there the the thing that I love is the difference in names. You got your Baron Ulysses Tantamount von Braggart, as Glenn mentions. You've got Professor E. Meredith Snortskinoff. But then there's also this one called Chaos. Yeah. Mm, yeah. The Slacker. So if we're looking yeah. for Jed to have a cameo role. Yeah. And the way then like the new yeah. ones are like, oh, that's that's the clockmaster, but we don't mention it. Jed just to be in the back as the slacker. Yeah. 
But there's a real lack of of menace in some of these, I think. There's a green a green-haired evil clown named the Fibbler, which I can't believe they yes. didn't get sued away from Sunday for that. Yeah, apparently he looks a lot like the Caesar Romero version of the Joker in the Batman series. So, also known yeah. as the best version of the Joker. For, a, for my money, it Heath is. Ledger, yeah. great performance. No painted over mustache, so can't win. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, you know they're henchmen because it says so on their shirt. You know. <laughs> as I'm looking through the characters, um, uh, one of them apparently is named Ludicrous. Yeah, um, right. And here's here's what I want to know. When we launch our gritty reboot, do you think there's a chance that we could get noted rapper Ludacris to be in our reboot? It's worked for the Fast and Furious franchise, y'all. Well, I was just about to say, I think that also gets us into a backdoor shared universe with Fast and Furious. This <laughs> That's what you want. That's crossover time, baby. What we need is the movie where Dominic Toretto drag races against gritty Bible man. No doubt right. about it. And then, and then he just he, he, he like runs, like he has a tank, and he just crushes Bible Man. Exactly. Yeah. And then roll credits. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, that'd be great. I'd watch that because because that's what we were just talking about. We, we were just talking about the the '60s version of the Batman, and it was low budget, y'all. I mean, like low, low. Like when they're walking up the side of the building, it it's clearly just they've turn the camera sideways and they're just walking along. I mean, it's, it, it's really extremely low budget, but still somehow sublimely wonderful. Yeah. You know, there's whimsy, there's humor, there's sort of a campiness to it. That's just fantastic. Yeah. You could have done that. Well, nope. could they have, <laughs> that's a good question. Because the thing about that is, and I'm a huge proponent of the six of the sixties Batman TV show. The thing that made it wonderful and whimsical was its self awareness. <laughs> was that right, really right. ever on the table for Bible Man? <laughs> no. So in the and again, that brings us back to the gritty reboot because I think we need a Snyderian lack of self awareness here, and just really leaning yeah. into it. So I'm I'm trying to think of villain archetypes that we might have here, and I think. Uh, you know, you gotta get things that you know evangelicals are scared of and would want to see defeated. I think some kind of soul tie bane, mm. and this and that yeah. kind of run. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. He tricks you, and then you don't realize. Um, there's, I, mean, I think, uh, just maybe just like a woman reading. I'd be like, oh, we don't trust that. <laughs> yeah, she's got to be defeated. Get her, Bible man. <laughs> right. Well, I I have those are excellent. I have a thought, just an idea for Please. the um backstory, right? Ah. Uh-huh. And and so, you know, I'm sure gentlemen that you've not seen this movie or any of the subsequent movies because they are bad and evil and naughty. Um but uh you might have heard of the John Wick franchise. Mm. Um that's yeah. some sort of British prime minister, like a docudrama it, kind of thing. Yeah, exactly right. He like he like makes candles. Yeah, exactly right. Noted candle okay. maker John Wick. Exactly, exactly. But I, I'm told, I of course haven't seen it. It's a great I've... reboot about that children's poem where he kills a butcher and a baker. <laughs> oh my lord. <laughs> okay, so in the first John Wick, like um, before it got, you know, deeply, deeply funky, um, there is apparently like a, a, a Russian folktale about like a creeping evil that they call Baba Yaga. 
And they, they think maybe right. that's John Wick, and so it's part of why they're so afraid of him and whatnot. But so I'm saying is Bible Man could be Bible Yaga, right? Oh. And that's why all the villains are so afraid of him. We could just completely rip off the first John Wick, right? And just build it from there. Keanu Reeves as Bible Man, and he's shooting people the entire time. I think the other option for that that mess that kind of cross meshing is you. It's John Wick in all in every shot in the gravitas, but it's played by a six year old Willie Ames in the plastic Bible Man suit. <laughs> okay, riding a horse for no reason. I think we're I think we're closing in on this. I, I think you're right. Counter argument that would help absolutely no one and would make everything worse. I would like to read the following line, which occurred in an actual Bible Man episode. Oh no. It's always just fun and games until someone loses an eternity and you're about to, then we'll really be without a doubt. Okay. Was, was Bible man <laughs> casting someone into the bowels of hell there? Cause maybe this doesn't need a gritty reboot. Maybe this was too gritty to start with. Apparently. Okay. There's I'm some... Bible man. <laughs> well, that... Yeah. But, well, yes. Can 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 we speak to Bible Man Jed? Um, because uh, we just look. We and this is coming from a place of love, but we have a lot of concerns about right. your your behavior and your theology. Really. <laughs> well, here here's one more pitch I have I have for the villain, which is because we all love Bane. You know, sure. all versions of uh, from crazy '90s version to Tom Hardy version. But the the voice is great, and there's another yeah. show I certainly haven't seen because it's very naughty. Would be the uh, the new Harley Quinn animated mm. show, which has a great Bane who uh, does all the the Bane gravitas, but it's about very kind of minor things, like he runs HR at the Legion of Doom. <laughs> so in that kind of idea, I would I think I, my pitch for you know the a big Batman villain would be a uh, college freshman atheist Bane. Oh yes. Yes. So he's in the same thing with the coat and the whatnot, but it's, I've been reading a lot of Nietzsche. (laughs) (laughs) Have you heard of Richard Dawkins' Bible Man? (laughs) (laughs) It's just... Just attempting to weather him with his uh, uh, poorly informed uh, thoughts. <laughs> yeah, it's a, just a lot of misunderstanding philosophers and just kind of really going at it. Yeah, And then also you could have kind of the opposite of Mr. Freeze, where it's just a guy who believes in global warming. <laughs> okay. And, yeah. like, and the, you know, you get the, the CEO of Exxon who's like, he's threatening quarterly profits, Bible man, get him. <laughs> I've got it. He's Please. he's got to be European, of course. That's how you know he's bad. Yeah. And so, not, yeah. not, not any more specific than that. He is just European. Yeah, exactly. I am from Europe. <laughs> so instead of Look Mr. Out, Freeze, Bible Man, he's from Europe. Uh, miss or melt? Oh, yes. that's very very nice. Thank you. Thank it's you. It's all a hoax. Yeah. Okay, and then there's you know because one of the the kind of conceits of a lot of superhero films recently and this was definitely in the last christian nolan batman movie with the bane thing whereas you have the the fake out villain right and then the real villain is is kind of revealed um i think ultimate final evangelical bible man villain is just a poor person (laughs) (laughs) and that also sets you up for the guest star 
Because it'd be like, man, this single mom works two jobs and really gotten some predatory loans and she's having a hard time. And this this group of church people is like, well, maybe we should you know, help her with some government services and maybe we can help her out. And then it's, what are you doing here, Rave Damsey? And he's like, this is why they don't need it. Bible man's like, right. thanks to my friend Rave Damsey, I think we really saved the day. Yeah. <laughs> this poor person is making me feel like I should do something. Get him, Rave Damsey. <laughs> I would have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for Rave Damsey. <laughs> I think another blockbuster pitched. I, I would definitely watch that movie. And with the current rate of what, at, at the current rate, streaming services have to pump things out and uh, the way sets can't open up, I think we've got an outside shot at, get, at getting this made. Oh, yeah. As ever. Coming soon to Disney Minus, Bible Man, <laughs> the reboot. So we will move on from that. We will tell you about something that we put a lot of effort into and is not an underhanded way for things to um, make Christians seem silly through bad production value. And that would be Bridgebox, which is a thing that has good production values. It's got songs, sermons, Bible studies, and all sorts of good stuff in your inbox the first of every single month. You can sign up at missionusa.com slash bridgebox. And then we also have our bridge live service every Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. Central Time. There are no uh, canonical villains, but if you want to, you know, read into my performance as I'm, I'm planning to bring the whole thing down, then that's that's a fun extra layer for you as the viewer. That's fine. Every, seven, every Tuesday, 7.30 p.m. Central Time, facebook.com slash thebridgechicago. We're going to jump to our first question here. If you hang this all the way to the end, I'll give you some ways you can get in touch with this, or you can scroll down into your episode description and find the links there. Our first question comes into our Tumblr inbox and says, Hi guys, I'm still in the early stages of a pretty serious relationship. I want to be a good partner, and I want to make sure I'm practicing self-care as well. Do you have suggestions on how to practice self-care while you're in a relationship? Also, how do I know if I'm being a good partner and how do you measure your growth as a partner? And Glenn, uh, two really cool questions contained herein, and I think they're going to balance, and I think they're going to intertwine in a lot of ways that we may yeah. not expect, right? Because being a good partner and taking care of yourself are going to both be part of the same whole, aren't they? Absolutely, yeah. If you're if you're doing it right, both of those should be going in the same direction. So yeah, uh, I, I'd agree with that 100%. Uh, let's so let's start here. I think this is about asking ourselves: How do you feel about being a servant? Because uh, that's what uh, the Christian life is about. Uh, those of us who are in leadership are meant to see that role as being a servant. Uh, when when you have a marriage, that's where we're serving one another. Uh, we're lifting each other up. Uh, we're equipping and enabling one another to do amazing things, and we're in a position where. We're creating this synergy together so that it's more than the sum of its parts. And that's, that's the exciting, uh, optimistic uh, goal that we have that we're trying to shoot for here. That starts with this idea of being a servant. And I, I think it's worth asking in terms of the self-care element of that and, and you know, self-image, self-identity, uh, healthy internal boundaries, as well as being a good partner for the other person. How do you feel about being a servant? Uh, do you feel like uh, maybe it'd be better if we were just two independent people just doing our own little jam here? Uh, it's a cool idea, except for that just doesn't really 
work. The idea of just two people kind of hanging out and doing their own thing doesn't work. It's all hands on deck. Everybody participate here. Uh, so I think that's the uh, first thing to look at. A second thing I'd, I'd have you look at is uh, to look at, is, is there any way in which the partner that you're with now is um, paying for or is, is sort of living in the shadow of the last person? If, you, if this person is paying for the last person's mistakes. And then I would also put your parents in that, um, the way that you are raised. Uh, is your Is your partner sort of dealing with that and sort of having to answer to that is there uh, you know are they somehow being made to alter their behavior in order to set themselves apart from those things anything like that uh, it's important for you to take this person as a unique individual in this relationship to be one of a kind and and, and not uh, something that's in reference to other things you've been through Hopefully you've learned things from other experiences. Maybe you're a little bruised from those things uh, so that trust may be a little hard to establish in certain ways. But if people earn that trust, they need to get it, and that's going to give you a healthy relationship. I think the final thing that I would put on this thing, it's about asking how often are you listening to the Lord on relationship stuff? I think a lot of people, you know, they put a lot of prayer into, should I be with this person? Uh, it, you know, is it a good idea for me to date this person? Is this person right for me? All those kind of things. But then when they get in the relationship, it's like, well, the Lord said this is the right thing, so probably I don't need to have any further insight on anything. Thanks. I'll just, you know, thanks, Lord. I'll just, I'll just cruise on by myself here. Uh, but I think asking a lot of questions along the lines of, Lord, am I giving? as much as I should? Am I overdoing it and enabling somebody in some sort of way? Do I need to be sacrificing more? Is there is there something I could change that would make a big difference here? Are there little things that are um, wearing this person down that if I changed it would be different? Really seeking the Lord on who do you want me to be in this relationship is super important. It's actually quite rare. And I think it would really be very transformative uh, for yourself and having a good self-care, but also for establishing a healthy relationship. It's a really great place to start off. That was all excellent, excellent stuff. And Jed, I'd love to get you to develop a little bit more because I think it's it's very fertile ground, this idea of knowing how you're a, par- a good partner and knowing how you're growing as being a partner. Absolutely, absolutely. So the the standard um, Christian answer, which is a good answer and the right answer to the question of, you know, uh, how do you do a relationship right, is that kind of a, a Christian relationship and especially a Christian marriage is kind of defined by the idea that the two of you are able to be a team that serves the Lord more effectively as that team than either of you could separately. And that's that's kind of the standard Christian answer. And again, it's it's a good answer and it's a right answer. But it's also, in a sense, kind of the culmination of a journey that begins with exactly what Glenn was describing in terms of being a servant to each other. Um, Before we can get to a point where uh, we're able to be a team that's kind of serving other people, we do have to figure out how to be a team that's serving each other. We do have to figure out how to be a team that's just making life better for each other. And so... In a lot of ways, that's actually the the thing that I would encourage you to look at as a good gut check is 
is life better because you guys are together? Like, you know, are there material ways, are there notable ways, other than the fact that when people ask you if you're single or not, you can say, you know, I, I have a boyfriend, I have a girlfriend. Is your life better as a result of being in this relationship? Um, is your partner's life better? Is it better for both of you? And there will inevitably be areas where the answer is, well, maybe, maybe not right the second. And that's okay. The answer, then the next question is, are we moving in that direction? Are we figuring out how to um, serve each other more effectively and how to support each other in a way where life will be better as a result of, of being in this relationship? We're going to read a, a passage of scripture that, I, you know, if you've grown up around church stuff, you've probably heard 10 million times. Um, it's from Ecclesiastes 4. But it, it, I want us to try and hear it with, with new ears and, and with fresh eyes. It, it goes, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. There are some, obviously, some of those examples have a strong tie to the, the time in which they were written. I, I don't think you're, you're likely to be attacked by literal foes anytime soon. At least I certainly hope not. Right um, when you least expect it, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if you look at that list, kind of point for point, all it's talking about in, you know, done properly, two being together makes life better. Two being together makes life improved for both people, as in they are um, safer, they are supported, they are cared for, they, they keep warm. Um, all of that, once we kind of live into that and get good at it, all of that then can be turned to saying, okay, now how do we serve other people as a team? You know, how do we let the love that we have overflow into, you know, finding a way to serve other people? But it starts just like Len was saying with that, you know, how do I, how do I serve in this other person in the context of a relationship in a way that makes life better? That just makes it better when we're together than when we're not. I think that's that's great stuff from both of these guys. I'll attack a few things on the end here. One is that to also answer your question about how do you practice self-care when you're being a good partner, um, a little more complicated when we've been uh confined to our homes for the better part of a year at this point. But yep. uh it's about a lot of this is gonna be about uh giving yourself a break and your partner a break because um Space is good. Alone time is good. Uh, hobbies that your partner doesn't care about at all are good. That's yep. That's all fine. That's all perfectly healthy. And that's all, but that's all serving as these guys are pointing out that, that larger thing. We're going to move on to our second question here. It comes in and says, I've been working to get my life together and trust God more. Looking back at my past, whenever I start getting better, I mess it up. I know it wasn't good looking back, but in the moment, it's like there. I can't help myself and my feelings. How does God want me to handle this, and how can He help? And a, a great question. A, we answered a version of this on a recent episode of the Bridge Live. If you want to go find that? I believe that was our February ninth episode. And Jed, where would we start off with this idea of feeling like you can't help yourself? It's a great question, man. So to really dig into this, we're going to need to talk a lot about the idea of what you think you deserve. But before we can do that, um, we need to unpack briefly, um, if you grew up around or, or just have been around otherwise uh, evangelical Christianity, particularly in the United States, 
Um, you've been given a very funky idea of the word deserve um, because anytime anyone utters that word, uh, the really learned uh, uh, Theo bro is supposed to say, you know what you deserve? You deserve death and hell and punishment. That's what you deserve. Um, which is one of those things that has like a 0.01% um, tie to a few things in scripture, but is wildly out of context and does not in any way mean what they think it means. Um, Jed, would it be helpful being that, you know, theologically it's correct that, you know, Jesus took our punishment. So would it be helpful if I like intimately described the Phoenician process of crucifixion as a thing you deserve for being naughty? Yeah, it would not at all. It, it, it would not be in any way helpful or instructive, and it would wildly miss the point in a way that appears to be willful. Oh, well, yeah, that sounds like that's right up my alley. <laughs> um let's so you know very briefly before we really dig into the meat of your of your question let's be clear you deserve good things in life um and the way that we can know them is god wants good things for you if god wants something for you then it is right for you to have it if it is right for you to have it then you deserve to have it so let's repeat that logic again you deserve good things in life the way that we know that is because god wants good things in life for you if God wants them for you, then it's right for you to have them. If it's right for you to have them, then you deserve to have them. That's how the English language works. Like you would be the heir to something and therefore the the legal and rightful recipient of it? Yes, exactly. You would literally have a, a deservingness of it that was um, enforced, that was legally binding. Yes, much like that. And that's an interesting—I feel like I've read that somewhere, Matt. I mean, is that something you just came up with, or is, do, do I recall that from somewhere? I'm pretty sure that's me. Dude, you should write a book about If you that. read That's it anywhere sharp, else, man. they stole it from me. <laughs> <laughs> to quote Cressy the Clown, if this is anyone but Paul, you're stealing my bit. <laughs> okay, so with that in mind, now that we've said that, let's talk about deserving things. Okay, everybody has a sense, whether they know it or not, of the things they think they deserve in life. Uh, absolutely everybody. The kind of job that they think is right for them to have, the kind of relationship that they think is right for them to have, the kind of restaurants they think is right for them to, to eat at. You know, we were talking a while ago and kicking around this, this question, and we looked at the example, you know, if you feel really comfortable at, you know, a Chili's or an Applebee's or TGI Friday's, and all of a sudden we, we force you to go to a place with a white tablecloth and the menus in French um, and you know, everything is a thousand dollars a plate. You're not likely to feel terribly comfortable there. Um, and the reason for it again, is that everybody has a sense of here's my level, here's my station, here's my, you know, here's what I deserve. This is, this is what's right for me to have in life. And that's neither good or bad. It's kind of unavoidable because we, we all have that, whether we, we know that we are or not. But when we start to run into trouble is when we think we deserve something at a five, you know, a, a, a career that is a five. And then God starts to bring a career into our lives that's a seven. Because now we have a situation where we're receiving something that's quite a bit better than what we feel like we deserve. And it's certainly quite a bit better than what we are accustomed to and we are comfortable with. And this sets up a bit of conflict in your brain. When people feel uncomfortable with the situation that they find themselves in, particularly when they feel like they are getting more or better than they deserve, that tends to weird people out. Um, certainly, most people in that situation are going to try and find a way to not be in that situation anymore so that they don't have to be uncomfortable. You know, if we take you to the super snooty French restaurant, you'd probably leave uh, because you don't like being there, which makes sense. It's an uncomfortable thing. So the question that we need to look at is, 
where did your ideas about what you think you deserve in life come from? Where do they come from? Did, did they come from a teacher who told you uh, that you never amount to anything? Um, did they come from uh, an ex romantic partner who told you that you were no good? Did they come from a parent that, that told you that you were useless? Where, where did your conception of what you deserve, and what your station would be, where did that come from? And then right along with it, are we open to beginning to change those things? Because one way to read the dynamic you've described where things start to get good and then, you know, you kind of, it, you know, it's like you go into a trance and you mess it up. One way to look at that is self-sabotage, that you got something that was better than what you felt like you could handle, better than what you felt you could deserve, and you were uncomfortable, and so you found a way to get out of that situation. Most of us have done that many times in our lives. If we want to avoid that, we need to start looking at what we think we deserve, why we think we deserve that, and how we can change that, how we can begin to more intentionally decide what's appropriate for us to have, what the Lord might want for us to have, and how we move towards those ideas. That is a fantastic place to start this off. And Glenn, I'd love you to to pick us up there, because I I really like Jed's description of that tension in your mind when you're confronted with something that's, it also happens when you're confronted with less than you think you deserve, but in this case, we're looking at more. And there are a number of uh, very unhealthy ways to deal with that, which you've uh, seen all of. And yeah. so maybe we can we can look at that on a way to getting to the healthy place to deal with it. Well, yeah, I think ultimately, you know, uh, when we're trying to make changes and we're we're having struggle where we're falling short, I, I I totally agree with Jed. I think we have to look at some self sabotage. We have to look at how we feel about uh, about this new territory where we're succeeding. Uh, but I think it's worth looking at um, how are we going about even trying to succeed uh, as we get there? Are, are we going at that by half measures? And and if we do that, you know, we're we're doing too little, and we're gonna we're gonna keep making mistakes over and over again. If we're if we're doing that in sort of an overly broed out kind of ultra yeah. intense way, you know, trying to blast our spiritual quads, we're we're gonna end up. Uh, falling off uh, because we can't sustain that. We're doing it in our own strength. Uh, so uh, what's funny is all that sabotage stuff that Jed was talking about uh, tends to shape those out-of-balance strategies that we use. Yep. So we want if we, if we're in, in a good state of balance, uh, that's maybe the best indicator that we're getting on the other side of the stuff that Joe was talking about there. Um, you hate messing up. I know that. I, 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 I'm getting that from this question, and I, I see the pain behind that. I hate messing up. Everybody hates it. Uh, if you've messed up several times when you're trying to get things together and it's sort of a, an all-consuming kind of, of failure, you hate that so much that it, it you can just taste it. It's huge. It's a it's a really really big thing, and it you could be it, it would be reasonable for you to assume it would be reasonable for you to to say, uh, I hate that worse than anything. I hate my failure worse than anything. Uh, but you don't. Uh, you don't hate that worse than anything. It is not the biggest emotional thing in your life. You've done it several times before, and you've lived through it, and you've survived it. 
It's familiar territory. You you know that routine. You know how to deal with it. You hate dealing with it, but it's also familiar. It's also something that you know how to handle. Uh, it's a world that you know the rules to, and you you know what you need to do with it. But success is totally different. If you're succeeding wildly on a level that where you would normally fail, all of a sudden you know you feel like you're out over your skis. You feel like uh, I I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know what's going on here. That's very uncomfortable. It's very unfamiliar, and the emotional impact of that unfamiliarity is uh, stronger in many cases than that emotional impact of the familiar territory of messing up. So. I think the the key thing, if you want to tie all this together that both Jet and I are talking about here, is asking, can you get comfortable with being uncomfortable? Yes. Uh, that's kind of the language that, that people use in our day job who are who, that we work with or trying to deal with uh, recovery from addiction, uh, that at, at some point you, you take the uncomfortable nature of that as a sign of good thing. Am I pushing myself in the way I need to? Well, I'm uncomfortable, so yeah, apparently I am. I, you know, I feel, I feel I'm like I'm in over my head. I feel like I can't quite handle this. I feel like I don't know what the rules are exactly. What I need to be doing right now, that's good. That you, that's a good indicator. It's a good. You should get comfortable with that feeling of being uncomfortable because it's giving you an indicator that you're pressing yourself in the right direction, uh, and that that's how success is made. Is is you get in unfamiliar territory and uh, you pray really hard because you're really desperate and the Lord gives you insight and you start figuring things out. That That's what my life looks like. If, if your life looks like that, that's that's actually what a successful life, life looks like. Uh, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. All great stuff from both of these guys on that topic. We're going to move on to our final question here. It comes in and says, I read a very disturbing news story that said over a quarter of white evangelicals believe in QAnon. I think I know some in my church and maybe even my own family. I hope that after the election happened, they would give up on the conspiracy and things would take care of themselves. It doesn't seem like that happened. What are we supposed to do about conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorists? And uh, again, an excellent question. We're glad you, you, you're definitely glad you wrote it in. And Glenn, where would we start with what is. I believe the technical term is a giant mess. Well, yeah, and I did a little bit of a deeper dive on this uh, just uh, in preparation for this question. Uh, Matt sent it to us earlier this week. In doing this research, there are you know, a bunch of loose conspiracy theories. Uh, it's not a, um, a, a particularly well-organized ideology, so it, it has you know, some elements of it that are kind of too fractured and disconnected to be what we normally think of as, as a religious cult or that kind of thing. Uh, but it is uh, dealing with what we would call unethical influence. And I think that's a word that we, we used to say brainwashing and that's, I don't like that term. It's a bit of a loaded term, but unethical influence, I think really hits a nail in the head. Uh, the the way that we get out from underneath uh, unethical influence, ultimately, long-term, is by increasing everyone's media literacy. And that's another uh, jargon term that I think we need to get familiar with. Uh, I 
I am shocked when I talk to people how few people understand about the news that they read, and that they don't understand the difference between um, a wire service and you know a local affiliate of of a a news network. They don't have a sense of how many foreign correspondents might work for this news agency. They don't have a sense of how these stories are put together, where they come from, how they arrive uh, at places, what's the difference between the accuracy of this news source versus another, where's the reliability, all of those kind of things. We need to be literate about that. We need to understand that. Um, that Once you learn about that, uh, then you can hear something that you can recognize as bias without seeing it as the truth. So unethical influence, I want to give you three things, uh, and I'm really, really, really boiling this down, but uh, three key things that you need to look at, and this will apply to conspiracy theories, cults, bad church stuff, anything, uh, bad relationships even. Uh, Three different things, fear, flattery, and isolation. Fear, flattery, and isolation. So the first of those is fear. uh, fear's a tool of manipulation. I tell you, uh, the aliens are are coming to get us. Uh, the the there's next door neighbors are Satan worshippers. Uh, this political party is filled with people who are trying to kill us all. Whatever it is, I'm going to get you afraid, and then I'm making grandiose promises that only I can give you the solution to that. I have a way to fix that. So I get you afraid. That's the problem, then I present myself as the solution to that problem. Second thing is flattery. Uh, so I'm giving you the secret knowledge of the secret attack that's coming, and because you have the knowledge, you are special, and you are smart, and you're cool, and you're on the inside, and you um, aren't just a, uh, a person who has done a poor job of raising your children. You're a person who's learning about the most important thing in the world through a complete stranger on the internet. And that makes you really special. And you are fighting demons or aliens or lizard people or whatever it is. But I'm flattering you because you have this secret knowledge. And then the the third thing is isolation. So isolation is um, uh, everyone else is lying. I'm the only one telling telling you the truth. You can't trust anybody else. Only trust me. Uh, because they are trying to hide the truth from you because they're they're part of the conspiracy they're part part of the cabal they're they're part of the thing that's attacking you you can't trust them they're attacking you like i said in in the first place that's why you should be afraid of them that only i can fix it and you're my special soldier that has the secret mission and so we need to isolate ourselves from all of these other people and all these other influences uh, because they're part of the deep state or they're part of the the you know the the aliens or the lizard people or whatever those things are, so fear, flattery, and isolation, uh, sort of key areas that we see in uh, anything that involves unethical influence. So part of this that you're asking us about, and here's where I want to land the plane, is you're asking us about how do we deal with these people? And there's a tremendous temptation, I think to try to take somebody who's involved in a conspiracy theory and try and just go toe-to-toe with them. And and I think that ends up being a mistake unless you really are, are trained in how to do that. You end up forcing this person to defend themselves, and you're attacking them. You're not attacking their ideology. I mean, you you that's your intent, is to 
to attack this crazy lie that they're they're on, but they see it as you're attacking me because this knowledge of this thing makes me special. So if you're saying it's all a lie, that means I'm just a jerk who doesn't know what he's talking about. And of course they're going to defend that. So it's important to recognize that people buy into this stuff because it's meeting an emotional need within them. That's super, super, super important. They buy into conspiracy theories, cults, any of these kind of things because it meets an, an emotional need within them. Uh, uh, every study of cult behavior shows uh, people with PhDs are just as likely to believe in lizard people as people who are living in a trailer park somewhere. It doesn't matter. It's not about brains and thinking things through. It's about feelings and the way that this makes them feel special. It's meeting an emotional need. If you find a different way to meet that emotional need, show them that you love them, show them that you respect them, show them that I, you know, I don't really want to talk about this other stuff and I don't want to get, uh, uh, I, don't, I don't want to um, engage with you on that. I just want to let you know that I love you and I respect you and I, I don't know if this is healthy for you, uh, whether it's true or not, I don't think it's healthy the amount of time and the, the amount of emotional toll that it's taking on you, and I'm concerned for you. I think coming in on that uh, wavelength can plant a seed that maybe years down the line, months down the line, weeks down the line, will will be there for them when they decide it's time to stop believing in this stuff. It's a really, really comprehensive way to start that off. A lot of great information there. Jed, I'd love you to pick us up pretty much exactly where Glenn was leaving us because it's definitely true of occult behavior of conspiracy theory in general. And I think based on what we, we've experienced the last couple of years, it's specifically true of QAnon that this is, I've, I've heard QAnon described as an er conspiracy theory. It mm. uh, contains all things. You can, everything, it really does seek to be an explanation for everything someone might be experiencing. So in that way, um, playing whack-a-mole with f- some little piece of it to try to uh, prove that wrong is really not going to be an effective tactic. We all, when we look at this stuff, I think our first instinct and a very rightful one would be, uh, well, if I can just pick away at a thing and, okay, well, you know, this guy said he was going to win this election, but he didn't. So clearly, or this person said, the Q said this thing would happen on this date, and it didn't. So yep. clearly that's really not the way this stuff works. So that leaves us with a question of what are we to do with ourselves and what are we to do if we want to stay in the life of people we love when just debunking and deprogramming is really beyond our control? That's a great question. Um, I think we want to begin with a little bit of context because one of the things – so so he, we're faced with with two realities that are both kind of unavoidable. The first is – this stuff is completely disconnected from reality. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're not sure, let all three of us assure you anything that you have crossing your stream that comes from the QAnon world is utterly divorced from reality. This is not real. And if you're thinking, you know, well, maybe it seems kind of exciting. It's not it, man. This is this is not real. And it's it's not what you want to do. So we've got that on the one hand where it's just, you know, this is this is completely bananas. And so, you know, we're, we're putting that you know off to the side. But then we're also faced with the idea that people that we love and care about are getting caught up in it. 
Um, and so we kind of can't just completely forget about it because, you know, my aunt Cindy is really into this and I think it's causing problems in, in her life. And I think what that, what those two things together, what they strongly tempt us towards is the belief. Well, I know what probably good advice would be generally, but this is an emergency. All bets are off because we've got to rescue aunt Cindy. And that's a really understandable impulse. And it's in some ways a really noble impulse. It's also not going to work. Um, Glenn has essentially already explained why, but let's give a little bit of context for a second, because I think we, we need to be able to move away from the all bets are off view that, that I think all of us are sometimes tempted to as completely out there and bonkers and bananas as QAnon stuff is. And again, we really want to underline and underscore that this is not a legitimate belief system. It is not a legitimate political philosophy. It is not a legitimate religious movement in any way. This stuff is not just morally wrong. It is false. It is completely and utterly and abjectly false. As much as that is true, and I, I need you to hear me on that, it's actually not a big jump from what a lot, what certain corners of Christian culture have been focused on for the last 30 years. I want to say that again, as out there as all of it is, as indefensible as all of that is, it's only a few degrees off what certain subsections of Christian culture have been talking about and doing and obsessing about for the last 30 years. This is not new stuff. It's just, it's just a new presentation. And so we need to take a long view on this. We want to not fall prey to it's an emergency and we've got to rescue Aunt Cindy uh, because it's not something new. We, we need to take a long view on this. And so here's step one of the long view is you've got to live your life, man. Um, the Lord has things for you to do. He has a life for you to live. He has um, adventures to take you on. And just like Len is saying, we definitely want to communicate to people like Aunt Cindy, hey, I love you. I care about you. I'm not sure about all this. I definitely do not want to hear your sales pitch about it for sure. But I love you and I care about you. And, and I, I hope, you know, someday you, you shake loose of this. Meanwhile, I'm going to go live my life. I'm going to go do the things that the Lord has for me and live the life that the Lord has for me. And man, that's really important because A, the there's something about this kind of conspiracy theory nonsense that is magnetic, that has a um, quicksand-like effect where the whole goal is to draw you into debating it and talking about it and getting into it because that's what it feeds off of, and that's, that's how it gets stronger, and we don't want to feed that. We don't want to go that way. So that's, hey, I love you. I care about you. I am not on that. Do not talk to me about that. I'm not interested in discussing it. I hope you come off of it anyway. I'm off to have a taco. Um, that's, that's where we want to go with that. The two other things that I would add that I think are really worth having in your brain because they're really important is oddly, the key question is not how deeply weird is the stuff that aunt Cindy is into. That, that's actually in a certain level, not the most important thing. The most important thing is, are you willing to come off of it to whatever extent you're on something funky and weird? Are you willing to come off of it? And the reason that I say that is when you look around a church on a Sunday morning, there are a lot of people in those pews that are absolutely committed to 
much milder ideas that are also massively destructive. I'll give an example of of one that that we encounter all the time, and it's going to sound at first very sensible. You know, I think we can all agree that compassion is good, and of course that certain forms of generosity are good. But, you know, charity is a dangerous thing, gentlemen. Mm. Charity, yes, Matthew. It was going great until that but. Then things got weird. You know, Matthew, I'm glad that you mentioned that. The thing It was is, almost like you put the thing out front that you knew I would agree with and then, like, tried to pull the old switcheroo on me. I don't want to incentivize other people's laziness. Mm. Mm. The Lord helps those. You mean like people who just invest money and don't work to get money? Matthew, the Lord helps those who help themselves. And isn't, isn't that, you know, it came from Abraham Lincoln, which is basically the same thing. Isn't it came that from Ben Franklin. You may want to look up his other activities because. <laughs> thanks. Okay, here's the thing. We're, we're mocking this and it deserves to be mocked. I can't tell you how many people in your church believe that. Yep. And believe that in a way where they have no interest in coming off of that and no willingness to come off of that. Strangely, um, we could have a much more optimistic prognosis about someone who's into much more weird stuff, but is prepared to say, ah, well, I was just playing around with that. I'm ready for something new. That kind of just pissed off everybody that cared about me, and I'm, you know, I'm ready to do something else. We can feel much more optimistic, actually, about that person than a person who has a mostly socially acceptable belief that's wildly unchristian and destructive and is totally committed to it. And there's a lot of that in church. So put all that together. We want to love people. We want to draw very clear boundaries about discussions that we're not interested in having. If we are looking to be in a pastoral role to people, if we're looking to become a trained licensed counselor, uh, we want to learn all the stuff that Glenn was talking about and really get the nuts and bolts. For those of us who are lay people in these contexts, we want to have firm boundaries, we want to live the life that God has for us, and we want to recognize that nobody's without hope because even people who are on really weird stuff can, in fact, in due season, come off of it. It's a great point, and within that is... If there is someone, particularly in your family, in your life that you deal with a lot, who is on this, there's no real script for how you handle that, and you're going to have to yeah. do what works for you. There was a a recent, as we record this, a Huffington Post piece came out, a really good one, where they interviewed nine people whose uh, parents, older parents, had really gone on to the, the QAnon thing, and there was just a lot of variety in the ways they were dealing with that based on where they were in their life, the relationship they were trying to have, the the other things. There were some people who were just saying, like, you know, my my dad can't ever not talk and yell about this, so he can't be around my kids, so we don't see him anymore. And there were people who said, you know, whenever I talk, whenever my mom tries to talk about this, I say, well, you know, it's really not that, and you'll see. And she goes, well, she just basically does the opposite to me and just says, well, you know, you think you have it all figured out, but you'll see that this is right. And that, you know, burns me inside, but... It can be uh, as much as you can when you're in totally in crazy town. It's a vaguely uh, respectful conversation that doesn't go anywhere cuckoo. So uh, to me, that is worth having my mom in my life for X, Y, and Z reason. And we're we're not campaigning one way or the other. Those are your choices to make, and you, you have to trust yourself. And you also have to uh, be willing to pull the ripcord at any given time based on things changing. Um, 
But the a couple of other things out on that from the, the church perspective, because that is a very interesting aspect you bring into this. And as Jed pointed out, uh, if you go back to the place your question started with a recent survey that I think it was 29% of white evangelicals uh, self-reported believing some idea of QAnon. Um, this is a, a kind of thing, a conspiracy theory, a LARP, a, a disinformation, whatever you want to call it, that came up targeting a group of people and using their language and their anxieties and their uh, angers specifically. It is not, this is not formed in a vacuum. And a lot of that even comes down to kind of the appropriating language from anti-abortion groups over the years and putting that towards, you know, hashtag protect the children and that stuff. It comes from the idea that, which you've probably heard from a pulpit if you go to a certain kind of church, that the fact that people are making fun of you for what you believe is how you know you're a true soldier in the faith, and that's when you really have to stick in there and all that stuff. So if you are in a, a situation where you think this may be having a, a hold in, in your faith community, a couple of things you can definitely do. One is uh, ask your pastor point blank, QAnon, where do you stand? What are you saying to people? And, you know, you want to hear it's insane. I'm telling people it's not true. I'm trying not to be mean and run people off because, you know, the very good reasons that Glenn and Jed have given you here, but this is not a thing that can be argued with. You know, well, you know, I, I talked them down to maybe only half of the people who run the political party I disagree with are child eating cabal members. So that feels pretty good. <laughs> I feel like that's a very, a very reasonable and a moderate view to have. And that, that's not what you want. But And as far as looking at things in your own world and your own kind of kind of that you can encourage or discourage in your own community to not fall prey to whatever the next version of this is going to be, because these guys have pointed out this is not the first one of these and it sure won't be the last. An overarching idea that QAnon really, really digs into, and it's something that has been really stoked up in evangelical circles for a long time, is that. The, the desire for an outside force to come in and punish all the bad people yep. and reward all the good people. Yeah. And that's, that's left behind books. And that's kind of, you know, some idiot going on his, his radio show and talking about how um, a hurricane happened because of who people choose to have sex with, as opposed to, you know, barometric pressure and stuff. But it's all this idea that we're, we're going to be proven right when all these, uh, people who do naughty things suffer. And here's this weird, scary thing. Everybody's theology has a little bit of that in it. Everybody thinks that a little bit, that they're all going to see when the people who do the things I don't like finally suffer and it all comes out. And you have to be pretty careful with yourself in your, if you lead small groups, if you're teaching people, and that kind of in-group, out-group, we're gonna there, we're gonna show them, and we're gonna there's gonna be this reckoning and QAnon they call it the storm, and it's very uh, evocative imagery. That gets dangerous. Not that if you bind that anyway, you're gonna bind QAnon, but that is a a negative thing that's gonna give something bad a foothold in a community, in a thought life. It's just not gonna go good places. So if anything positive comes out of QAnon. And the the real suffering that this is bringing on families and faith communities and stuff. Hopefully, it's that we start to see these things a little bit, 
and counter-program ahead of time as we go forward if we're not caught up in that. And we certainly hope that if you're in a position to be a part of that, you can be a part of that. And we certainly want to back you up in that in any way we can. If you have a question for us, you can write into say that podcast at gmail.com. You can uh, go to thebridgechicago.tumblr.com slash ask if you want to keep that totally anonymous. We certainly hope you will join us every Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. Central Time at facebook.com slash thebridgechicago for our Bridge Live service. And head on over to missionusa.com slash bridgebox to check out Bridgebox if you haven't done that yet. We're going to take out the song this week. This is from that Bridge Live service. It's been a while since we had some music for that. This is Jed leading all of our wonderful online Bridge Live friends in his worship song, For Good Reasons. Take out that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. Thanks for joining us today, Bible Man. We'd like to go around the circle and have each person share how you're trivializing the gospel has affected each of us. Concordus Man, would you like to go first? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great clapping. I love that. Let's try this together now. I got four good reasons. I got four good reasons to believe. From the scars on his hands to the scars on his face. I got four good reasons to believe. Oh, y'all sound great, man. Let's try it again. I got four good reasons to believe. From the scars on his hands to the scars on his face. I got four good reasons to believe. Nice. Let's try this course now. Jesus loves me. Two. Jesus loves me. Three. Jesus loves me. For God so loved me. One. Jesus loves me. Two. Jesus loves me. Three. Jesus loves me. For God so loved me. Oh, you did it. That's the whole song. You got it. All right, now take it from the top, like we mean it, as you can. I got four good reasons to believe. From the scars on his hands to the scars on his face, I got four good reasons to believe. One, Jesus loves me. Two, Jesus loves me. Three, Jesus loves me. Four, God so loved me. One, Jesus loves me. Two, Jesus loves me. Three, Jesus loves me. Four, God so loved me. Oh, that's good. That's good. All right, now. We'll do it one more time from the top. Here's what we're going to do. Give me a little bit more boom on those claps. A little bit more now. All right. All right. Now, when we get to that chorus, we're going to say those numbers as loud as we possibly can. Can y'all help me out with that? Yeah. I'm unconvinced. Can the rest of y'all help me out with that? Yeah. All right. I got four good reasons to believe. From the scars on his hands to the scars on his Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, for God so loved me. Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, for God so 